is Friday, July 21st, 2017, time for episode 14 of the Barnhart Podcast. As the theme music is a little bit different today, we have a different topical theme. This is the first of our Financial Friday episodes of the podcast. We've been talking about doing this for a few weeks, and now it's happening. Now, just to set the stage a bit, uh, how is the Friday Financial Friday show going to be a little bit different? What kinds of topics are we going to be covering here? Well, <laughs> that's, that's, that makes me laugh. I think we're probably going to stick to financial topics, <laughs> economics, finance, how these things relate to current events, hopefully also some practical advice. We're going to get into some pretty pretty practical stuff in today's episode, I hope. So, But yeah, it's going to be... Um, you know, the the other podcasts that we do, it, ha- it has a tendency to be very, very churchy. And there's certainly a lot of overlap in in these dark days with the anti-papacy and everything um, with with governmental topics. And and um, even to some extent now we're finding out that there's overlap with the church and financial dynamics. But I want to do a podcast that's just getting back to my roots and is just straight up financial content. So that's what we're going to shoot for here. And, that, and I realize that was a very pedantic intro, but uh, I, I give presentations to programmers from time to time. And I find one of the best things to do right at the beginning is just to set the set the agenda, set the scope. And, and uh, even though it's kind of obvious from the name of it, just felt I should do that just for those who uh, didn't expect uh, to, to hear a different theme today. So now you know. <laughs> No problem at all. And can I can I please just brag on the theme itself? Oh which yes, go when, for it. When when Super Nerd sent me the uh, the 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 first um, audio file rough draft of of the theme of going from the William Tell overture right into beautifully segueing into the old school theme from Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. Oh, you, you don't understand the joy that this put in my heart. And I have to tell a funny story as to why it is that I wanted to use the theme music from Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. So, you know, I was I was an, an incredibly strange uh, young woman. And um I started watching Wall Street Week. It was on on Friday nights. And I started watching it on public television, of course. And I started watching it when I was, I don't know, 11, 11, 12, 13, you know, probably 12, something like that. So we're talking 89, 90s is when I when I start watching this stuff. And it, it, it always amused me. It always made me laugh. But the thing that made me laugh the most is that I have a, a beloved uh a beloved distant family member who would always refer to Louis Rukeyser as the world's biggest Jew. And so it, it just, it would just make me laugh all the time. And then Louis Rukeyser, he would do an opening monologue and he would always make puns. He was a punster and he would, he would snicker and smile and laugh at his own puns. And it was just, it was really, really amusing. And watching Wall Street Week, I think I kind kind of keyed into the fact, even as a pretty young kid, because what I would do is I started working when I was 12 and Friday nights were the early night. Um, actually, ra- uh, work for me when I was a kid wrapped up at 7 p.m. as opposed to um, either 8.30 or 9 um, on all the other days of the week. And so seven, uh, Friday nights was the early night. And so we 
we got done at seven and I would generally be home well before eight o'clock in, in time to watch Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser and remembering well all of his uh, <laughs> all his his cast of his cast of characters that he would have on his panel, like Abby Joseph Cohen and Frank Cappiello and every other person was was basically from the squid, which is, of course, Goldman Sachs. Um all the J.P. Morgan people came in and it occurred to me and, you know, this was later confirmed. And I thought to myself, you know, these people are going on television. Millions and millions and millions of people are watching this show. I wonder if these people <laughs> in my in my childhood innocence, this is already how cynical and jaded I was. I wonder if these people buy the stocks that they recommend. <laughs> before of course. Going, Why wouldn't they? <laughs> Before going on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, the world's biggest Jew, on Friday nights, and then and then just turn around and and you know w- wait for them to rally on the open on Monday, and then just sell <laughs> sell them all and make make a nice little profit. Sure enough, research was done. There was indeed the Rukeyser effect. And it was it what it really was was one of the first manifestations of what Goldman Sachs, what that dynamic, which they was later revealed, what they refer to um, the average American retail customer as was the Muppets, M-U-P-P-E-T-S. These were people who were just to be taken advantage of. They were people who were to be screwed over. Um, so they were the people that. Goldman or J.P. Morgan or whoever it was, but but this term came out of Goldman. It came out of the squid. And if you're going to be hardcore financial person, you have to stop calling Goldman Sachs Goldman Sachs. You have to start calling it the squid because its tentacles are in everything. So, you know, this is the first manifestation of the squid going out publicly and saying one thing and their in-house proprietary position is exactly the opposite. So what they're doing is they're just taking advantage of the dupes. And it, it, it occurred to me fairly early as a child, well, you know, oh, don't don't people realize, don't people realize that that's probably what they're doing, that they're just front running this and that and that you're and that the the average American who's who is the target audience of Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, this is not this is aimed at the at the middle middle class or even the lower middle class. This these are not sophisticated people that this this program is targeted at. And anybody who sure enough, it turned out that anybody did who did have any level of sophistication was, of course, probably trying to play the the opposite side of the Rukeyser effect and make a note of whatever Abby Joseph Cohen or Frank Cappiello were pushing that week and then, you know, ha- have an order be on the phone with the broker on Monday or Tuesday morning and saying, OK, has there been any sort of a rally yet? All right, go ahead and sell it. And and that that was it. So even even as a as a tender child, even as a tender child, there it was. Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. Most of those people are dead now, but there it was. And I I am greatly greatly amused now to be using that as the uh, <laughs> as part of the intro theme to the Barnhart podcast. Very thoroughly tongue in cheek. But we're we're going to use our power for good here and give out good information for the people who are listening. 
Yes, absolutely. Believe me, I'm I'm not trading anything anymore. And I and I hope that as folks listen to this, that they'll realize that there's basically no information here that isn't essentially essentially just pure common sense. So well, let's that, let's that do gets it. us into our first topic. Then uh, it's, it's a topic we've been talking about doing for a few weeks now on, on the uh, the main podcast, but just have, have been running out of time. And that has to do with the length of mortgages. You made the comment that seven years is the ideal uh, length of a mortgage. Why is that? Well, um, it actually goes back to scripture. This is all based off of the Old Testament models of the uh, the Jubilee. You can learn a lot about economics by reading the Old Testament. Um, jubilees, which were these debt forgiveness years, were either were every seven years, and then in a cycle of seven of these seven year. Uh, debt windows, there was a big, big jubilee every 50th year in which all debts were canceled and everything reverted. Now, what's interesting is in Barnhart Podcast 13, which is the one that we just did, um, the one about the crisis in fatherhood, um, we discussed about how the Japanese culture tends to be the tip of the spear in terms of human depravity. And believe it or not, this even applies to economics, finance, debt, all of this sort of thing. Japan has had for a very long time now, 100 year mortgages. Mortgages in Japan are multi-generational propositions. This is this is just completely evil. It's completely depraved because we know that the Japanese culture for whatever reason among the pagan cultures tends to be the leading tip of the spear in terms of human depravity. We should look at this paradigm of the Japanese having century long mortgages. And we should learn well from this and say, well, whatever the answer is, it's almost certainly exactly the opposite of what those crazy so-and-sos over there are doing. And sure enough, that's exactly that's exactly the truth. Um, Up until in the United States, a lot of people listening to this, I bet they have no idea up until. Just after World War II, shock, shock, when communists were infiltrating the government and so on and so forth in the immediate post-war period. I mean, there had already started to be communist infiltration before World War II, but obviously during the 1950s, it just, it exploded after the war. Joe McCarthy was right. And um, that up until then, the maximum term that you could get a home mortgage for in the United States was... Want to guess, Super Nerd? Seven years? It was seven years. It was seven years. And that was directly tied to the the biblical model. That's why maximum mortgage terms were seven years. Now, what I want to do is I want to walk through with our listenership what this would look like in terms of um, the life of, let's, let's call it a young couple, okay? So we have a young couple. Um, they get married. They're 20, 21, 22 years old, which is about uh, which is a great age for young people to be getting married. Don't look at what our modern culture is. I mean, this business of infantilizing people so that you have, you know, 40 year old men and women who are who are intellectually, spiritually and, and in every other sense, complete children. This is wrong. People should be uh, getting ready or or actually getting married when they're in their late teens, early 20s. That That's a healthy human paradigm. Okay, so you've got a young couple. 
let's say they're 22 years old and they get married. So what they do is they chill out for a few years and they either rent and, and live very much on the cheap or they live with their folks still. Okay. That's, that's in play. And the point of this is they are saving up money. They are saving like crazy. And they've probably been also been, been given some um, cash gifts at their wedding. You see that kind of thing. That's all very legitimate. That should all be saved. They should live on the cheap for, you know, a year, two, three, until, you know, the kids start coming basically and save, 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 save. And what are they doing? They're saving up for a down payment on a house. And that down payment should be something like 20, 25% at least. Okay. That's what they're, that's what they should be going for. Okay. So let's say that they get their 20, 25% down payment saved up. They find a modest starter house that can hold them and two or three kids, which means you basically only need like a two bedroom or maybe like a two bedroom with a study or something like that. We're not talking about being being in your 20s and moving into a 4,000 square foot McMansion. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about young people living on the cheap and buying only what they can afford. But let's pin down what that means, buy only what you can afford. You should only buy, in terms of residential real estate, you should only buy what you can afford to pay off on a seven-year mortgage. And I mean, people listening to that right now are probably sitting there thinking, I'm completely out of my gourd. But you guys, I'm telling you, this whole business of these 30-year mortgages, this is all an advent of the, the, the period of our culture in which we are in collapse, okay? This, this business of having these huge, enormous, long mortgages, this is, this is no good at all. And we need to go back to the old school model as it was up until the 1950s or 60s where you're looking at seven, maybe a 10-year mortgage, but I still think that seven is ideal, okay? So you only buy what you can afford to pay off. Dude, pay off, as in you own the house in seven years. So um, just going back and referencing quickly the biblical source of this, we're looking at in, in Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel, there was a jubilee every seven years, which meant, all debts were forgiven, and um, all people who who went into debt to somebody and became indigent poor could then, what they would do is that they would go to work for that person. But the period of work in order to pay off any outstanding debts that they might have accrued to another person that period of what you and I would call indentured servitude and what is referred to in the Bible as slavery, you see, is would that period would end at the next Jubilee. Okay. So all everybody's looking at this seven and also this 50 year dynamic. And so what everybody's doing and how everything is priced is based off of how much time is left until the big debt reset. And so if you think this through, what you realize very quickly is that basically people were just leasing from one another. And these leases would just be constantly resetting, everybody would zero out. And and 
the ability for people to work off other sort of debts meant that people could then go into a state of servitude for another person and work off their debt, but they would be absolutely assured that this was not a lifelong dynamic, that they were going to get out of debt at some point. And again, remember, it's it's hard for us to think about because this is a completely foreign concept, basically, in our economy. But everything, all lending of money, all of these transactions, everything was keyed off of how much time was left until the next debt reset, until the next jubilee. So that's what you have to keep remembering. And thus, it was basically impossible for a person to get themselves into into the kind of situation that almost every young American is in now, and that is in debt that they can basically never repay. Um, we're talking about student loan debt. We're talking about you know these 30-year mortgages and, and it being exposed to all kinds of risk that way. And we're going to talk later about auto loans now. I haven't had a car in four years, um, and I'm, I am detached now from the car market. And I looked up, and I had no idea that the average um, car loan now is 68 months. That's the average duration of a car loan now. And there are many car loans that are 73 to 84 months in duration. Which this, is seven is, years, if you're not doing the math very quick. And I've, I've heard yeah. it explained and justified that, that newer cars are a lot more reliable, so they'll still be working at the end of the loan. No, that's absolutely wrong, because the first thing I did is I went and I looked up um, the car that I bought exactly 10 years ago was an Infiniti G35X, and I, I got it new, um, and I looked it up, and I think it was, I want to say I paid like 30, 37 or 38 for it. Those are awesome cars, a sweet car. I found one online with 175,000 miles on it, and it was $3,700. I, I mean, if someone if someone put a gun to my head and said, Ann, you have to get a car, you have to get a car, I would say, well, just hook me up with exactly what I had, a, a 2007 Infiniti G35X. Get, get me one of those. 3,700. I found another one that only had 100,000 miles on it, and it was like seven grand. When, you know, I would always take my cars in and do all the regular service and everything. So I kind of got to know the the service managers and I would visit with the service managers at the Infinity dealership that I went to. And, you know, we had some pretty candid and honest conversations. And they told me that Nissan, Nissan is the parent brand of Infinity. Infinity is the luxury brand of Nissan. Um, and they told me that Nissan was building those cars to have you know, drive drivetrain, powertrain lives of 300,000 miles. So if you can put 200,000 miles on one of those cars and you're, you're safe as a kitten. And in fact, the way he put it to me is you put 100,000 miles on one of these cars and you're basically just getting it broken in. And I honestly believed him because he, I mean, if you think about it, there's no reason for a dealer to tell somebody that because it, it's basically saying you don't need to trade up every four or five years. You don't need to get a new car every four or five years. You can just keep this one if you're happy with it and you keep servicing it. Um, I thought that was very interesting that, you know, and I, I compare that 
you know, you hate to badmouth American car manufacturers, but they totally have it coming. There was a while there where I was just absolutely convinced that Ford was building its its um, its cars, not not the pickups, but the cars, that it was like sabotaging them, that the transmissions would fail between 80 and 100,000 miles. I knew so many people who had their transmissions fail on, on Ford cars right in that, in that period between 80 and 100,000 miles. And it's just like, dude, I, I can see why Nissan and Infiniti would say, look, let's, let's build these things so that they have a 300,000 mile drivetrain life. And I, I believe that's the case. Beyond that, I would get one of those cars now. I would not get a new car now because the new car, new cars now have all this scary, Wi-Fi, um, automatic control, super creepy technology that's being integrated into these cars. And frankly, I don't want to take the risk. I'd rather have a car. I mean, it has a computer and it's not going to survive a, a le- an electromagnetic pulse blast or anything like that. But at least it doesn't have a damn Wi-Fi remote control in it so that the government could take it over and, and you know, steer you into a wall or something like that. I, I just turn it off while you're going down the road because you didn't make your, your payment. Exactly. Exactly. I want nothing to do with that. So I would, I would lean toward getting a car that was 10 to 15 years old at this point, but anyway, back on track. So debts forgiven every seven and then a huge, huge debt Jubilee every 50 years. And so what this means, everything's priced accordingly. Everything's being keyed off of these these debt termination windows. And what this means is that bubbles can't form, you see, because the price as you get closer and closer and closer to the date of the Jubilee, every single day, the price adjusts. And what, you know, what we're talking about mostly here is probably land the price of a parcel of land will adjust based upon how long, how much use the buyer, which is really the lessee, will get out of it until it reverts back, everything resets, and then what that lessee and lessor could do is re-enter into another effectively lease for the next seven years, and the price would be based off of that. And if um, if the lessee wanted to wanted out of the parcel of land, for example, then a transaction could be done. But let's say there's you know two years into a seven year into one of these seven year jubilee windows, the lessee decides he wants out and he wants to pass it to someone else. Okay, that's fine. The price of that transaction will be, will be based upon the fact that the remaining effective lease is five years. Prices adjust bubbles can't form people and people really are protected people can't get in trouble the the less the lessee is protected because he's no bubbles form um prices are constantly adjusting and the lessor is protected so that it, you know if if something goes wrong there's a there's a market that he can go into again there's not a bubble forming everybody's everybody's basically has a level of protection going on here so um I've covered the fact already. I'm, I'm just going down through my list of notes here. Um, maximum mortgages in the U.S. followed this model. Um, seven years max. Um, so if we think how this works out, young couple get married at 22. 
Okay, they save their money while they're renting or living at home for, let's say, the first three years. Okay, so when they're 25, they've saved up enough money that they can put 20 percent down on a house and get a seven year mortgage. Okay, and they only buy what they can afford to pay off in seven years, which, yes, implies that the monthly payment will be higher, which means they need to buy less house. So no 4,000 square foot McMansion when you're 25, okay? So um, they buy their first home, they they execute this. Now, one thing I wanna throw out here and mention, one thing that I always did with all of my mortgages was that I would pay extra. And the way I set mine up is I would pay on all of my mortgages, both my my big, big house and my office and my rental properties. It was just a, a, a standing rule with me. All mortgages were set up so that the bank took an extra $100 a week, 100 bucks a week I paid over and all of that went to principal. And so what that means is that on my big, big house, that worked out to being basically an extra mortgage payment per year going completely to principal. If you make one extra payment per year, that does absolutely incredible things to the speed with which you pay off. So when I say a seven-year mortgage, what I actually mean is seven years is the maximum time it would take you to pay it off. If you didn't make any extra um, principal payments and all you did was make the monthly amortization table principal plus interest payment every month, you would pay the thing off in seven years. If you make extra payments, then the time, it's, it's really shocking working with interest and interest tables, how quickly the, um, the, the principal just shaves off and how quickly the time shaves off of these things. So if you can do it, you, you should try to target, it seems to me, making at least one extra monthly payment per year. I did the $100 a week thing, and it was, it was always just killer. I think that's, that's a really good thing to do. Um, and so in let's let's say that they take 7 years to pay off this this first mortgage on their first starter house and they've also presumably started to have kids by now okay cuz they're they're good catholic people and they don't contracept because contraception is a mortal sin so in seven years, they own their house outright. Now, they got a house full of kids, so they need, they need a bigger house. But look, they've got this house, and they own the thing outright. They own it completely. They have full equity in it. So what can they do? They sell the house. They take the full sale price, and let's not even worry about whether or not they've, they've made any money in the broad sense in the seven years on the housing market. Let's just not even worry about that. Okay, they sell the house, they they pocket 100% of their equity, they go and they plow 100% of that into a down payment on a bigger house. And again, we're not we're not looking at the 4,000 square foot granite countertop thing. We're we're not looking at that. We're we're living within our means and remember, we're going to do a 7-year mortgage on this deal too. So, you take 100% of the equity from the, the first house, which you own outright when you are, let's see, they, they bought it when they were 25, so they're now 32 years old. 
32 years old and they own their house. Sell it. 100% of that equity gets plowed into the next house, which is a bigger house because they've got a bunch of kids and they need some more bedrooms. Okay. So let's say that the full equity in the first starter house that they had equals a 66% down payment on house number two. So now what they're mortgaging for seven years is only one third of the actual purchase price of the next house up that has one or two more bedrooms for them. Okay. So now their mortgage isn't on, on the full purchase, isn't on the full market price of the house. It's only on one third of the market price of the house. And so the seven year payoff thing is easy peasy lemon squeezy. They pay it off. Okay, let's say they take seven years to do this. So hold on, let me see. They got they got married when they were 22. They got the first mortgage on the first house when they were 25. They paid that off when they were 32 and moved into the next house. So when they're 39, before they even turn 40, now they own outright the, the second house, the bigger house. 100% equity in that. Now, they have a choice at this point, depending on how many kids they have. They can just chill out, and now they live in a house that they own outright. They have no mortgage payment. They have no rent payment. None, okay? So they're, they have a very large disposable income now. So what can they do with that? They can, if they need to, they can improve or even put an expansion on house number two. Um, they can just save money. And at this point, they're going to be looking at having kids that need to be educated. Now, we know that they would never, ever send their kids to a, a bullshit mainstream American university because that would contra-educate the kids and it would do them intense intellectual and spiritual damage. So, you know, they're going to look to get their kids into some sort of an apprenticeship program, you know, some sort of a practical real-world um true education for their kids. It's not going to be cheap. They're going to have to pay for that too, but they, they have all this money. Number three, they need to be saving for retirement. Um, or, or if they, you know, if, if at this point they've got 10, 11 kids, maybe they do need to step in and do another one of these iterations and get into house number three. Um, they, now they could do that. Remember they have full equity in house number two. They can sell that bad boy, plow a hundred percent of that money back into now a third house, which is even bigger. It still isn't, um, it's not a million dollar house. It's not a McMansion. They're still living within, within their means. The other thing they could do is they could get, um, get out of town and maybe do a combination of buying a house that's sitting with, with land and start looking at buying land. But again, you don't buy anything that you can't pay off in seven years. Look at the strength, look at the financial strength that these people have had since they were young, since they were in their 20s. They've had equity in their home. Um, they've not been in any sort of super risky position with regards to their real estate holdings because even if the market does soften, for residential real estate, they have so much equity in their homes at any given point that they're never upside down. You know, they're never looking at a short sell uh, position or anything like that. And because they have been conservative and intelligent 
and only gotten into the sort of property that they could pay off on a seven-year mortgage, then by definition, they're exposed to less risk. They didn't go into the $850,000 house when they were in their early 30s, leveraged to the gills on, you know, one-year arm, five-year arm, whatever it is, they're not exposed to any fluctuations in, in the real estate market. These people sleep like babies every night, and they're having a bunch of kids the whole time. So it's it's really a good and sensible way to live. So um, let me look at my notes and see if I'm um, forgetting anything now that we've walked through all this. Educating kids, saving for retirement, improving the existing home. Um, if they get the third house, the third house would be paid off by the time they were 47. Okay, so they've got a, they're 47 years old. They've got 11, 12 kids, and they live in a big house which they own outright. Um, complete financial control. So what, what this shows us is that this paradigm which is based on avarice. It's trying to bewitch young people with avarice saying, look, let's, let's turn this into a 30 year mortgage with a five, a five year arm or even a one year arm with little to no down payment. In fact, at the height of the real estate bubble in the late two thousands, um, outfits like countrywide bank were giving, 125% mortgages, which means, okay, you go find a house that is that has a $400,000 purchase price. Not only will the bank leverage the house for $400,000, but they will give you cash. They will give you basically a, um, a home equity line of credit for $100,000, purely speculating on the the notion that the $400,000 house which the customer has zero equity in is going to increase in value that rapidly to justify having another $100,000 home equity line of credit you know just leveraged against smoke and what was going on I I can testify about this because you know, this is what happened in Denver, and this is how I got into the very big house that I had in the late 2000s, um, as, especially outfits like Countrywide. This was all being done by race. And, the, you know, the Clinton administration is who started these these race quotas on these um, on these mortgages. You could be a black person. You could walk into Countrywide. You could have no job, no job no employment, no source of income, and you could get one of these 125% mortgages on a $400,000 house. And so what these people would do, and there, there were shady realtors in the black community in Denver that were telling people about this, you know, sending people to these loan officers at Countrywide and telling them, ex- coaching them, and how to do this how, you you pocket the hundred grand in cash, or you know you go buy a Mercedes. You go buy a Mercedes and you pocket fifty grand in cash. You make the first two mortgage payments, and then you stop making mortgage payments. Then the sheriff won't be on your front porch evicting you for at least eighteen months after that. So you get to live in a $400,000 house rent-free while driving a Mercedes with another 50 grand in cash in your pocket for, let's call it a year and a half. 
before, you know, we'll have to figure something else out. This level of fraud was being consciously with malice of forethought executed and entered into by these shady real estate agents. And I also blame the customers because the customers knew exactly what they're doing. If the realtor sits down and says to you, make the first two mortgage payments and then stop paying the mortgage, you know exactly what you're doing. You're not ignorant of what you're doing. Well, now, there, was, there was also an element there where the, uh, there were some New York financial institutions where they were specifically buying the subpar notes then that, that the real estate agent was pushing and packaging these with as, as collateralized debt obligations. And then I, I don't know all the mechanics of how this worked yeah, exactly, but you take a bet against uh, a certain portion of this and then you go pay off on the whole thing. And the, the companies on Wall Street were raking in billions on this as well. Yeah, that's Goldman Sachs. That's the Muppets. Those, those were called subprime uh, mortgage derivatives. They would take all of these, bundle them up, trade them as a derivative product, and they were selling these things to the the audience of Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, for lack of a better word, and they were laughing about it. They were sending, there are inter internal memos that have been exposed and leaked where they're calling this stuff shit and vomitous and, and, and crap like that, and they specifically say, I have to come into work every day, and my job is to sell this shit and this vomitus to the Muppets. That is, to the completely ignorant American investing public. Um, that's who this all got laid off on. So when you have all this going on, and it, it wasn't just, you know, the, the dynamics with the black people doing this. It was it was everywhere. It's completely across the market. Yeah, and there, what there was a term that I recall. It was called the Nina loan. No income, no asset. You just walk in. If you have a pulse, you can have a house. That's right. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And there were probably and exceptions to that, too. Yep. <laughs> and what this does to any real estate market is that it inflates, it, it creates a bubble. Why, why is that $400,000 house, why does it have a market price of $400,000? If you sit down and think about this and compare it to um, real estate prices of comparable single family dwellings, aimed at a comparable market, which is to say the, the middle or even the top end of the lower middle class, and you compare the price levels, what you see is that there's a massive, massive bubble. The bottom line is that the price of real estate as it is right now it, it shouldn't be anywhere remotely close to this high. It goes back to the conversation that we just had, Super Nerd, um, that we have been having, and I've been having on other podcasts about how about healthcare. Why is the price of everything so damn expensive? Because in a sense, there isn't this engagement of, w with the market. There's this bubble, um, this money for nothing and chicks for free kind of dynamic. And it's inflating all of these price levels. A house shouldn't cost four hundred thousand uh, dollars. An entry level or 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 maybe second house, a second home, should in this day and age it should be in the in the high five figures, the very very low six figures, if that maybe. 
That is how inflated all of this stuff is. So people look around, they say, well, it's impossible for uh, it's impossible for young people to get into a house unless they have a 30 year mortgage, unless they're using five year arms or two year arms or all, all these products and all this crap. Well, I, and I was Googling it's, it while you were talking about it. And I see that um, it's not countrywide, but there are a couple of uh, several uh, lenders here. You can get a 40 year loan. And they're talking about California now has authorized 50-year mortgages. Yeah, yes. It's going to the Japanese 100-year. Don't you see? They want to get you into lifelong debt slavery, okay? You, you, people are, Americans are just all up in arms about, oh, liberty and freedom. You, you, Americans are the biggest bunch of slaves. It's the biggest slave nation that has ever existed ever and you're and you are begging for it because oh i'm so contraeducated i'm so uneducated and i'm so contraeducated that if somebody shows me just a lower monthly payment all i can see is that this monthly payment is lower than that monthly payment you don't you you are so contraeducated that you can't even look at the amortization table. You can't see you can't look at it and say, how much am I paying in interest here? Um, how long is it before I'm not upside down in this damn thing? How how if if the price of real estate drops by eight percent across the board? Am I going to be completely upside down in this house? And how long would it take me to get out from under that? Would I be looking at being in a short sale position if, if the real estate market pulls back and corrects just a little teeny tiny bit? You're buying into a bubble. You should be expecting it to not just pull back a little teeny tiny bit. You should be expecting it to pull back a lot. The only way to defend yourself against downside market volatility is to have strength of equity in your position. And people are just gunning for less and less and less equity, less and less and less strength, such that you're just never going to get out from under this. Then going back to the car thing, this, this car thing, you've got an 84-month loan on a car that is depreciating. I mean, at least what you can say for a house is, is it isn't depreciating as fast as a car is. You have an 84 month loan on a new car. You drive that thing off the lot and you're you're going to be upside down in that car for years. It will be years before you even get to where you're in a positive equity position on that car. This this is insane. And then, I mean, I I know people who have done the thing where, okay, you've got a car, you've had it for five or six years, and you want to roll into a new model. So you go into the dealership, you're, you, you owe more on the car than it's worth. You're upside down in it still. And so what the, the very kind, kind finance department at the car dealership offers to do is to go ahead, buy you out of your, of your car loan, Take the amount, take the difference 
the equity difference, that you're upside down in the car, and just attach that to the loan on this next new car that you're going to buy. So you end up at that point, you know, you're you're getting a, a car loan on like a $35,000 Tahoe or something like that. But you're actually the full the full cost of the loan you know that you had to tack another seven grand on there to get you out of the last car that you were upside down in so now you have this what what are you going to do you have a, an 84 month loan on a $35,000 vehicle plus 7,000 in cash because the 7,000 that's just cash there's no asset against that that's just them getting you out of the of the stupid mistake of the last one you're just making this all the worse because the 7000 is gone and then you know as like i said you drive a brand new car off the lot the depreciation is so intense that the longer the term of the loan the harder it is for you and the longer it takes for you to get to the point where you actually have positive equity because the two things are just going against each other intensely. The depreciation is is just beating the hell out of you. The interest is beating the hell out of you while you're you're trying to get equity into this thing, but it just takes forever. So, I mean, I, I don't know. In terms of my advice, obviously for real estate, seven-year seven year. And if you can pay it off faster than that, you should, you absolutely should. And that should be, that's what guides your pricing decisions. You sit down and say, what would be a seven year mortgage payment? And you look for each, you know, for each price point and what you can afford, well then by golly, that's what you can afford. And that's what you do. And you don't sit around and whine that you're, that people, that people in your peer group, are already living in a 4,000 square foot house with granite countertops, they're debt slaves and you're not. And you need to have maturity and vision and, and prudence and, and understanding of these things so that by the time you are 39 years old, you're in your second house and you own the thing outright while your neighbors are just are in seven figure debt up to their eyeballs up to their eyebrows. And in terms of, of cars, do not buy a new car. Get into the used car market. We're kind of in a sweet spot right now where these cars that are 10, 12, maybe even 15 years old, these are damn good cars. And you can find them that don't have, that don't have a lot of miles relative to what the drivetrain was built for. You can find one that was, that was probably maintained by a responsible owner. The technology's good. The technology's there. I mean, come on. The, the car that I bought 10 years ago had Bluetooth. It had USB ports. I mean, it was it was just a fantastic car. I would I would be delighted to have that car today. What the hell else is there that I need in a car? All-wheel drive. I mean, you know, infinitely variable all-wheel drive. It was a fantastic car. If I could if I could step into one of those for for five grand, oh my gosh, that wouldn't even be a decision. Why would I go drop forty five thousand dollars on basically the same car with you know government mind control in it um, when I could drop five grand, own the thing, not be in debt to anybody, not owe any bank anything. Nobody can come and repossess it. Remember the Barnhart axiom. If you can't stand in front of it and defend it with a, with an AR, then it ain't yours. And it never really was.
And one of the other, I guess, moral implications of being a debt slave, whether it's to a car or to a house, you don't dare speak up or rock the boat because I got to make my mortgage payment. I got to make my car payment. And uh, you you really do lose a lot of freedom of whether it's expression or voice or just to make a stand. And of course, we've talked about that a lot on the other podcast, that all it takes for evil to get a, to make, make progress is to simply not say anything about it. Well, if you are worried about your mortgage payment, or your car payment, yeah, you're you're going to keep your mouth closed. That's exactly right. That's such a good point because I get so many emails from people who are emailing in and saying, you know, it's happened. I work for this and such corporation. I had one guy email in. I don't know if we've discussed this on a podcast or not. This is horrific. He worked for a major aerospace, you know, aerospace and defense contracting company, the name of which everybody would would recognize. He sends me an email. He says, we all got called in at this certain level of management. They're having this faggot do this this sodomite tolerance workshop that we had to do mandatorily. And what one of the exercises in this toleration of sodomy workshop that they had to do was men had to pair off with other men and they had to embrace each other and they had to hold the embrace for I think it was either 10 or 15 seconds. That is sexual assault. That is sexual assault. And the guy, these people, they don't say anything because of exactly what Super Nerd just said. Because they say, oh, oh shit, if I lose my job, how, how am I going to make my mortgage payment? Then the bank will foreclose. Then we're all homeless. You know, if you own your house and you own your car and you've got a bunch of, you've got money and, and savings and so forth, you have a lot more flexibility to tell your employer when they demand that you engage in, in acts of sodomitical assault. You can tell them to go commit acts of sodomy with themselves and you can quit and you can walk away. Because you don't have a mortgage to meet and you don't have a car payment to meet. And life just becomes a lot easier. It's and a lot easier pick- to back up and pay for the threat to, to countersue the company if they want to come after you, too. It's like, hey, I don't have a car payment. I don't have a mortgage payment. I got plenty of money in savings. Bring it on. That's right. Yep. There's there's nothing to go after you with, in a sense. Now, don't be naive. There's they can always come after you. Um, they can always come after you. But this is, this was again, one of the reasons that I, I would always tell my, my cattle clients, man, you need, you need to get out of debt because if things go south, it isn't just, it also isn't just your friendly local banker. If things, when things really go south, um, one of the things that the federal government will do is start nationalizing banks, and it's already starting to happen in in Europe. And when the federal government starts nationalizing banks, what they're going to start doing is using debt as a coercive tool. Either you sign on and you get square with this with the government program, you either assent to what the Soros machine is doing, or else we're going to call your mortgage. You either pay it off in full right now or we're going to foreclose on you. And you say, well, that's not fair. I have a I have a 30 year mortgage that still has, you know, 23 years left on the term. 
well, you know, I'm sure the Jews were, were telling the Nazis when they rolled into Poland, you can't do this. Look, I, I own my home. I have a right to live here. You're naive. You're naive if you think that they that they can't and they won't do things like that. It's just another of, of leverage that they will have over you. The ability to call loans is, is an extremely powerful coercive tool. And so it's just one more thing. I'm not saying it's, it's a magic force field that will protect you forever and ever because eventually they'll just start coming with guns, you know. But um, for in the meantime, if you do not have, if you don't owe anybody anything, or you you literally could, if they did call your mortgage, you could scrape it together. You could go to your family and say, oh my gosh, you guys, this is what's happening. I need to pay this thing off right now. It, it, it it's, it's within the realm of possibility. Uh, it's just another way to, to take coercive control out of the hands of the state, nefarious actors, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and of course, if you have all your debts paid off, something that is going to be of no interest to you whatsoever, no pun intended, is fluctuations in interest rates. And that goes gets into our second topic. If you've been mm -hmm. following the news in Italy, politicians in Rome, and I mean secular Rome, not the Vatican, are getting pretty upset now, finally, about the African migrants flooding into Italy and not being accepted into the rest of the EU. Italy has threatened to take some unilateral actions of their own, such as granting temporary EU visas so that the migrants can go further north and relieve the burden on Italy. But officials in Brussels have indicated that if the, if the Italians do anything to alleviate the current migrant invasion, the EU financial regulators will do what they did in 2011 and, quote, allow, end quote, the interest rates on Italian paper to go to actual market levels. Mm -hmm. If you remember, this is, this is the same mechanism that took down MF Global and John Corzine. Not that it really affected John Corzine because he stole everyone's money to cover his, himself. Um, I remember Greek making news several year, Greece making news several years ago due to financial riots and the imposition of austerity measures mandated by the EU. Uh, do you really think the controllers in Brussels are going to pull the switch and financially kill Italy if they try to ease things up with the, the migrants? Oh, hell yes, absolutely. No, no doubt in my mind, no question whatsoever. This is the sword of Damocles hanging over all of these, these European countries. This is the Soros machine. This is the new world order, one world government saying you either do what we tell you and you either participate and you freely participate in this business of importing this invasion force, this occupying invasion force into Europe with, with the sole intention of destroying Christian European culture. You either do this and participate in this, or we will destroy you, and we will destroy you overnight. I want to walk through this quickly, this dynamic of, of bonds and yields and bond pricing and what this means, because I don't think most people have any idea how severe something like this could be and, it, and could be just overnight. Um, the first thing that this indicates, they're freely admitting that when Italian, and, and we're talking about Italian sovereign paper, we're talking about bonds issued by the Italian government, backed by the government. Paper that is issued by a sovereign nation is in theory the, the strongest kind of paper that it is because it's backed by an entire country. Um, 
Now, there are different degrees of how strong or how weak a country is, but, you know, be that as it may, we're talking about sovereign paper here. In, 2000, in the fall of 2011, when Italian sovereign paper spiked to 10%, what they're now doing is they are admitting that all of this zero or near zero interest rate environment that's been going on now for almost 10 years, that it's all bullshit, that it's all completely fake, that that is not what the interest rate market it is and if they if they just stand back and they and these regu- these central bank regulators whatever you want to call them criminals um, arch criminals if they let the true interest rate market emerge then boom you go from in Italy I looked it up um, Italian 10-year paper today was at basically 2.15 percent paper in the US, you know, it, it basically went to zero. And it's now huge, huge news that that uh, Janet Yellen, who is the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States, just raised rates in the US from um, point, 0.75% to 1%. Oh, my gosh, 1%. You guys, um, just just not long ago, just over, no, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, um, 90 day T bill paper in the United States was 4.7%, I think flirting with 5%. And I know because I had to, I had to carry T bills for my commodity brokerage and I was making, I was making enough just off of the cash that I had parked in T bills to pay my quote system every month, to pay my phone bill every month. I mean, I was making a non-trivial sum of money just off the interest. That's how almost all of these brokerage houses and all of these financial institutions were making the bulk of their money. And so when the government in 2008, this global move came to drop all of these interest rates completely synthetically, I should, I shouldn't use the word drop. I should use suppress synthetically suppress the interest rate market effectively to zero. What this did was it choked off all of the interest income that all of these financial institutions, insurance companies, mutual funds, retirement funds, all of these institutions that were, were using the, the relative safety and security of, of interest rate products and especially of U.S. government paper, which is the which is in theory some of the safe, the safest paper in the world. That's what you want people to be using because there was, I mean, there's no no such thing as zero default risk, but there was for all intents and purposes zero default risk, and they were still making you know five percent off of some of this stuff. Okay. All of that income gets choked off. And now what do these what do these companies start doing? And this doesn't excuse them for what they did, but what they had to start doing was they had to start going into riskier products because the riskier a product is, the higher the interest rate yield, right? That's very intuitive. It makes sense. And it got to the point where in order to make any sort of return at all, you had to be dealing in these risky derivatives that had genuine default risk. Um, And then you get a a psychopath like John Corzine, put him at the head of a brokerage firm like MF Global. He's a psychopath. He wants to push it to its extreme. So he leverages the company up 100 to 1, and he starts trading not Italian paper, the the baseline instrument, 
he starts trading these wackazoid derivatives on Italian sovereign paper, repurchase agreements, which is basically like renting money in a sense. He and he's doing buying. He's having to cover these positions with credit default swaps, which means that if it's an insurance policy, you buy so that if the Italian if the Italian government were to default on its debt, that then the person who wrote this insurance policy, a credit default swap, they would make good on all this, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so let's walk let's walk through the math of this so that you all understand how severe talking about let let's take the example of if Italian bonds and we're talking about Italy because that's who they're threatening because Italy is is just pissed off and and looking at an existential crisis with all of these black African criminal musloids and and um, North African musloids and Arab Syrian musloids, this invasion force that they're, that's coming into Italy. And these people, there's been like 85,000 of these people. And that's that's the ones that they admit to. It's probably considerably more than that flooding into Italy and Italy saying, oh, no, no, we can't do this. And if you people don't help us with this, we're just going to start giving these people visas and we're just going to let them go. We're going to let them go through the northern borders because where they want to go is Germany, the UK, France. They want to get on the dole there. We're going to let them go. And so the New World Order is saying, no, if you do that, we will um, let your interest rate market manifest honestly what it is, which means it would basically, we could expect that there, that Italian interest rates would spike from 2% to roughly 10%. And you say, well, yeah, that's, uh, th- that would be inconvenient, uh, you know, in 8% increase in interest rates, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Let me explain to you what a catastrophe this would be. Let's say that you, you buy Italian bonds, and you pay a hundred grand today. You pay a hundred thousand dollars, and the yield on those Italian bonds is today's market rate, which let's just call it two percent even. Okay, that means that that position, your your Italian bonds that you paid a hundred thousand dollars for, will pay two thousand dollars per year in interest regardless of whether the market changes on bond prices or not, because you have those bonds, their rate is 2%, you paid 100 grand, it's over. That's what you have, okay? If the bond issuer is likely to default, that is to say if, if risk increases, the yield, that is the interest rate, will go up and the market price goes down. This is the thing that's tricky about bonds, is that the the interest rate and the price move inverse to each other. So if the interest rate is higher, you pay a lower price for the bond, and then the interest payment brings the, the total price up to par. If the interest rate goes down, then you have to pay a higher price for the bond itself because then there's a smaller interest payment that brings it up to par. So just remember that with bonds, it's inverse. So think about this. We bought a a position in Italian bonds for 100 grand with a 2% yield. If the yield were to spike as the European Central Bank is threatening Italy with, and it goes up to, and interest rates in Italy go up to 10%, 
what is the price such that 10% of that price is 2000 are, are, I, I will write this up and we will post this 20, on, on it's 20,000. <laughs> that's exactly right. I, Cause you followed what I said, but let me read it again. If the yield goes up to 10%, what is the price such that 10% of that price is $2,000? It's 20,000. Do you understand what that means? That means that exactly the same bond position just because interest rates increased from 2% to 10%, the exact same bond position yesterday that we bought for 100 grand on Monday would be worth how much, Super Nerd? Uh, $20,000. $20,000. So the, the people don't realize how extreme these what look to be on the surface relatively small changes in, in percents or interest. Oh my gosh, this would be abject catastrophe. So stating it another way, if yield, if the interest rate goes from 2% to 10%, yield has increased by a factor of what super nerd? Five. If yield goes from 2 to 10, the yield is increased by a factor of 5. Therefore, market price must decrease by the same factor. If you take a $100,000 market price and, and reduce it by a factor of five, where are you? 20 grand. That's just a check to make sure that our math was right. It's just looking at exactly the same thing, but from two different perspectives, looking at from the east looking west and then from the west looking east. Okay. So we, we've confirmed that our math is right here. Do you all understand that banks, insurance companies, brokerage firms, mutual funds, retirement funds, how, what, are these, what are these entities invested in? What is all of their equity tied up in? A lot of it's, municipal bonds. Bonds so, and also sovereign bonds, all of these products. So using Italy as an example, it, it would be utterly catastrophic. Think about the banks in Italy. Think about the insurance companies in Italy, the retirement funds, the brokerages in Italy. What are they mostly going to be allocated in? Probably Italian sovereign paper. If Italian sovereign paper does something like this, if the New World Order takes their sword of Damocles and punishes Italy for not participating in this invasion force importation, it would be utterly, utterly catastrophic overnight, absolutely overnight. Having all of these bond portfolios reduce in value by from, you know, from a hundred, let's say a hundred thousand dollars down to twenty you know, have this stuff reduce in value by a factor of five overnight, this would destroy Italy. It would destroy it. Then, I mean, then after the smoke clears from that, okay, now you've got, now you've got an interest rate at 10% or higher. Just that by itself, what is that going to do to small business development? What is that going to do to the real estate market? If there isn't access to credit, which 
at the lower level that it was before, and now credit is priced at this much, much higher level almost overnight, what is that going to do to the economy in terms of employment, starting new business, real estate transactions, so on and so forth? It's going to absolutely destroy it. So no, these people are not screwing around. And interest rates, what what the whole bringing the interest rate market down to 0%, 10 years ago, what that was all about was just setting up a paradigm wherein the interest market itself became a weapon of mass destruction. And that's what it is right now. We're there. We are absolutely there. Encourages everybody to get into debt. And then once you're hooked, then then uh, it's a matter of coercion. And this goes along with with, uh, what I said about the, you know, simply being out of debt previously. If if uh, Italy didn't have the debt they have right now, they could say, fine, we're going to open our borders and you're going to deal with it. Uh, I I I, I want to bet that uh, possibly what what um, why the threat is coming from Brussels is that if Italy were to get, to grant these temporary visas, that countries like Austria might just shut down the border and say forget the Schengen Agreement, the EU is over. And at that point, yeah. that would be an even bigger financial bomb if that went off. Absolutely, there are already troops um, mustered and stationed and standing guard on the border between Austria and Italy. And this has been a big. There's a big kerfuffle between the government of Austria and the government of Italy. But I think Supernerd is exactly right. What it would effectively mean is that the Schengen Group, that dynamic, is over. That's the, over. the Schengen Agreement. If you've never heard that term before, that was the agreement or treaty. I forget what what exact uh, status it has. That's what allows an EU. Um, somebody carrying an EU passport to move freely without having your check papers checked and requiring a visa to freely move throughout the entire EU the same way you would through any of the states in the United States. Exactly. If the Schengen Agreement breaks down, then it's back to where we were before 2000, where if you want to move goods and services from, it, from, from say, Ireland to Greece, every single time you're, you're crossing a border, you're going to have to pay customs. You're going to have to – it's, it's going to be slower. It's going to be more expensive. It's going to be uh, the complete destruction of the EU market, the destruction of the euro. That won't be fun. That will not be fun at all, and it's all coming to a head. So I hope that this little explanation of these dynamics, and especially walking through that calculation, and I will write this up th- so that we can um, we can post the little the very short little math proof of this um, with as we post this podcast. But there it is, and I hope you you realize and understand what's going on. And um, I would hope I would encourage everyone to. Do do as much as they can, even if you're not a young spring chicken. I know people who are in their 40s right now who are saying, look, we're, we're done with this 30 year mortgage nightmare. We are we need to buy a place. We want to buy a place. And we are working on the seven year model, period, full stop by our own free choice. And we will do nothing else. And if we have to live in a damn trailer, then we're going to live in a trailer. But we're not doing a 30 year mortgage. I am going to start looking into that myself, actually. I, I, I have a 30-year mortgage, and uh, I've got a lot of years left on it. So, I, I mean, it was my goal here with, within a few years to roll it over to a 15-year mortgage and aggressively pay that down as fast as possible. But even then, that that's twice as long as what you would recommend. Yes. Yes, it is. I'm sorry to say that. But um, I've I've never been anywhere near your place, super nerd. I don't know what it's like and I don't know what it's like in terms of space, but you know, I would sit down with Mrs. Super Nerd and discuss can we tighten the belt here? Can we live with less square footage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Can we live in an older home? Something like that. And uh, it's it's not I'm I'm not 
saying that you can do this without any um, reduction in lifestyle and comfort, but it seems to me that the days are so dark and the hour is so late that that's really a trivial concern at this point, it seems to me. I'm uh, pretty sure that we're going to have that discussion at some point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think this is not too bad for our first episode of Financial Friday. What do you think, Super Nerd? Two topics. They went together. And um, yeah, it's about, I think we're about an, at an hour right now. So we're, we're about on target for that. Perfect. All right. Well, we're, there's plenty more to talk about. So hopefully we will we'll see you all um, Tuesday-ish of next week for the regular podcast. And then hopefully we'll be able to do another one of these next Friday as long as all of the, uh, all of the schedules align. Hopefully so. If you have uh, email, if you have questions or feedback or suggestions for topics, you can email the podcast at podcast at barnhart.biz. And uh, any other parting words for the weekend? Well, just thanks to everybody. Be assured of my prayers and uh, God bless you and um, hang in there. Hang in there. Until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. God bless, guys. Take care. Bye.